So when people start going to the supermarket saying, where's the, where's the food? Well, we local farmers, we had it. We had it in our stockpile, our, our inventory, because that's just the way we live. That's the way we run our business. And so we were the ones that were able to step in and be nimble enough. So I think that's, that's part of what's dawning on people is they're realizing where was the food? Well, the food was in my community in these local farms. Today on Talk Farm to Me, we meet a Virginia livestock farmer who is considered the gold standard in sustainable agriculture by organic farmers around the world. Farmer, author, and lecturer Joel Salatin of Polyface Farm in Swope, Virginia, is a prolific writer and thought leader. He likes to stir the pot to get you thinking, even if you don't agree. Today, Salatin dishes on three major issues with farming and our food system that the COVID pandemic has made more obvious. And he has some solutions, too. Most of them involve you. Welcome to Talk Farm To Me. I'm your host, Farm Girl. On Talk Farm To Me, the farmer takes center stage and we find out what they do and how they do it. And no matter how you spend your time, I'm pretty sure you have more in common with farmers than you think. So sit back and relax and I'll bring a farmer, and maybe a cow or two, right into your living room for a chat. On 550 acres, Polyface Farm is where farmer Joel Salatin raises cows, pigs, and chickens. Salatin has been known to call the meat he raises beyond organic. Salatin has authored no less than 15 books and writes and lectures prolifically across the globe. Polyface Farm is located in rural Virginia between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Salatin and Polyface Farm featured prominently in author Michael Pollan's 2006 New York Times bestseller, Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History in Four Meals. Salatin famously refused to ship Pollan any of his prized meat because Pollan lived in the Bay Area. Salatin, an authentic promoter of organic local food, considered that to be too far to be within the farm's natural food shed radius. Salatin describes himself as a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, capitalist, lunatic farmer, and is known to have some controversial opinions. It's springtime at Polyface Farm, and Salatin and his team are immersed in the seasonal duties of running a farm. Calves and piglets are being born, chicks are hatching, They are planting the garden, repairing fences, and getting everything ready for the spring season. All of the day-to-day work has put Salatin and his team in a bit of a bubble. The cows don't know about the coronavirus. The chickens certainly don't. The tomato plants don't. The compost doesn't. And and so when when people come into the farm store, it's hard for us to shift gears to, to sit in their shoes 
where they've been in, you know, cloistered in their apartment for a month and, and listening to 24 seven stream of, of media about we're all going to die. Salatin is busy doing his work and living on a farm. He has never been more grateful to be where he is. If there's ever been something that makes, uh, makes rural living look appealing, this is it. This has really brought out the difference between rural and urban. Of course, you know, we, we service our urban uh, customers. And um, so the stories coming in from our delivery driver are, are just, we can hardly imagine the hysteria, uh, but, but it's real, it's there. And uh, we're glad we're here. <laughs> Salatin recently found out that a friend of his has the coronavirus. This makes the pandemic feel a lot closer to his farm and his home. But even before that, Polyface Farm had lost 30% of its business as its restaurant clientele shuttered their doors. Well, our, our restaurants are, are basically out. They're kaput. But it has been more than compensated for by the explosion in the retail. Like many farms across the United States that had a big restaurant business, Polly Face Farm is now selling what it would have sold to restaurants direct to consumers instead. I mean, financially, this is the best thing that ever could have happened to us. We're having the best financial spring we've ever had. There are a lot of people who are getting acquainted with and and uh, and thinking about authentic local food who have not been in this space before. The coronavirus crisis has impacted daily lives across the globe in innumerable ways with its rate of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. With some people in lockdown at home, and other essential workers, including doctors, nurses, farmers, and others risking their lives and working around the clock. The crisis has also made more obvious some pre-existing problems in the world of farming and food supply chains. They say that, they say that crises don't, don't make new trends. They simply expose trends that are already there that may not have been as, as obvious as they may have been otherwise. Even before the COVID crisis hit, Salatin saw cracks in big business farming, cracks in the food supply chain, and even some cracks in how the government is handling things. One of Salatin's favorite topics. First, farming. Salatin sees some big cracks in big business farming, many of which are exacerbated and getting more attention under COVID. There's a, there's a big difference between between uh, farmers that are in this this wholesale treadmill, like you know a Tyson chicken farmer or or a Smithfield pig farmer, uh, or or goodness somebody that's growing corn for you know Cargill. And I don't want to see anybody fail, but but I I, I think, uh, and I'll, I'll make a lot of people mad here by saying this, but as you know, anybody that knows me knows that. I don't back down from saying there's good farming and bad farming. And, and I, I think that if we fail to make that differentiation, that, that, there, that there, there can be good farming and there can be bad farming, 
I think we don't we don't make progress. We don't get anywhere if we fail to make that differentiate. If we're all we're all farmers, it's one for all, all for one. You know, uh, uh, and uh, that 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 doesn't help us. That doesn't help us um, solve problems and 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 make progress. Commodity farmers, those who grow products in bulk, like wheat, dairy, corn, even meat and send their products to wholesalers for distribution to consumers are stressed. Many of them readily seek advice from Salatin. They want to be successful, and they are working so hard with so little return. Last year, the median income of American farms was minus $1,048. The median, the median net income was a negative number. I know this sounds impossible, but it's true. According to the USDA, in 2020, it's supposed to be even worse. And that was pre-COVID. Many farmers have to take jobs off the farm just to stay afloat. We heard about this firsthand from former dairy farmer Peter Maurer in episode one. He counted pills on the night shift in a pharmaceutical company for 11 years to try to save his farm. The 24-7 farm work combined with a negative income is stressful. I mean, farm suicides are up. Salatin is right about farmer suicide rates. A combination of rising debt and tariffs, plunging prices for commodity crops, farming problems caused by climate issues, and the pressure to continue a family farming legacy amid modern farming challenges all contribute to farmer stresses. On a larger scale, the problems can feel, well, bigger. Every day, these stressed farmers are coming, are coming to me saying, okay, I went off the sinking ship. And the problem is the bigger they are, the harder it is to make the change because it's it's a lot harder to turn around an aircraft carrier than than a speedboat. And, and in the commodity business, because your margin's so narrow, the only way that you can make a living is to grow, you know, tons and tons and tons of stuff at this very, very narrow margin. They're in this, this horrific colonialism, beating the price to the bottom, global, how cheap can we make this, cheap food policy, and, and it, it, it grinds people up. It just, it does. Smaller entrepreneurial farmers like Salatin and others that we have featured on this podcast so far are in a different boat altogether, where they control more of their pipeline and have a direct line to their consumers. Farmers have the opportunity to make adjustments when challenges arise. When we wear the middleman hats, you know, the processor, the distributor, the marketer, and we wear all those different hats, the middleman hats, then we're not on that production treadmill because we have wiggle room. We can, we can make up, we can make up for production and in distribution marketing. We can process it differently. We can turn chicken necks into, into chicken stock and we can value add and we can do all sorts of cool things to take us off of that, that production treadmill. So for the, for the commercial farmer who's locked into the commodity program, doesn't own a market and is completely, at the whim of a price, a, a price where he's just a price taker, you know, it's it's just it's sad. It's really sad. To the bigger commodity farmer, Salatin has some tough love advice. 
I don't have an answer except to get off that ship as fast as you can. When I look at their situation, um, they never liked this advice, but I tell them, well, you need to sell, you need to sell about half of your land to get out of debt. And that'll give you enough wiggle room to start something different. Doing something else means innovating. Salatin encourages farmers who want to shift their model to think creatively. What's not being done now that could be important and lucrative? And what that means is you might have to just say, right over here, we're going to do something different. Maybe it's some honeybees. Maybe it's uh, some, some you know, plum trees. Uh, maybe it's a little you know, produce thing. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a Chinese sunken greenhouse, you know, I mean, there, there, there are fortunately in this food fiber space, there are a million things that you can do. Even within the same space, there are ways to farm and make money where the farmer is not beholden to a fixed price set by someone else. In wholesale dairy, for instance, farmers struggle to make money. At first blush, having less cows and making less milk does not necessarily seem like the solution. I mean, I'll never forget a guy. He had a massive dairy. I mean, he was milking a couple thousand cows up in Wisconsin. And his wife actually um, um, was able to procure a little 50-acre place nearby and started a little um, direct cell grass-based uh, like 25-cow dairy, she was making more than he was with 2,000 cows. Salatin is outspoken about how some farms that are failing might not be worth saving. Why not? Well, maybe they didn't innovate. Maybe there's just not enough demand for what they are supplying. The old ones, the inefficient ones, the, the non-innovative, whatever, you know, gradually um, go out. I realized that a, when, when there is disturbance and disruption in the culture, a winnowing has to take place. I mean, what if we had said in 1910, well, somehow we've got to prop up all these buggy whip mapers. I mean, we can't have these buggy whip mapers going out of business. Yes, buggy whip makers, the folks who used to make whips to drive horses. And he's referring to the idea that we might try to keep them in business, even though we're driving cars instead of horses. Cracks in the world of farming continue down the food supply chain, mainly to supermarkets. Part of the initial COVID panic, besides the health risks, was that supermarkets were running out of certain items and rationing others. Eight weeks in and shortages and rationing continue for some items. This week, flour is scarce. Toilet paper and sanitizers continue to be in limited supply. Again, the COVID crisis did not create these problems, but it did reveal some serious cracks in the food supply chain. Cracks that are more noticeable now to those of us who weren't looking so closely before COVID. We've heard, heard people say, you know, I'll never go back to the supermarket. Uh, uh, they feel like the supermarket system let them down. Supermarkets used to keep months of inventory on hand. Salatin explains that now the supermarket system, the stores, the warehouses, the suppliers, practice 
just-in-time inventory. This is an industry practice that tightly calculates supply and demand to save costs. That sounds very efficient, but the fact is if there's a shock in the system, it's very fragile because nobody has a stockpile anywhere. And so what happened was as, as everybody started going home and got scared and wanted to buy uh, two weeks worth of food instead of just three days worth of food, I mean, the, the average city has three days worth of food in it, only three days worth of food in it. Um, so as people started uh, uh, cleaning off the shelves, the just-in-time inventory means that the grocer can't call up a warehouse because they're just in time. The warehouse can't call up the processor because they're just in time. The, you know, the whole chain is just in, so there's nothing behind the curtain. Not able to find everything they wanted or needed in the supermarket, customers started thinking outside of their normal boxes. Where could they find food? How could they fortify their own personal security? Local farmers like us who are selling a branded product directly into the, into the community, we don't practice just in-time inventory. We, we do stockpile because a fox can get in the chickens or you know a, a drought can happen and you don't have anything to sell. Part of our whole um, modus operandi is, um, is, is, is thinking three and six months in advance. We, we do maintain an inventory. This is not something that the average consumer thinks about, right? I mean, you go to the supermarket and you get what you need, period. So when people start going to the supermarket saying, where's the, where's the food? Well, we local farmers, we had it. We had it in our stockpile, our, our inventory, because that's just the way we live. That's the way we run our business. And so we were the ones that were able to step in and be nimble enough. So I think that's, that's part of what's dawning on people is they're realizing where was the food? Well, the food was in my community in these local farms. That's, that's where it is. I could go there and get it. And, um, and, and that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. At Polyface Farm, Salatin finds that consumers are entering a space that is new to them. They are shopping directly from the farm. And he's noticed that they are also changing some of their buying behaviors. We have a farm store. So there are lots of people coming into the farm store and, and they're buying bulk. They're, they're not buying, you know, $20 worth of stuff. They're buying stuff for two or three weeks. Uh, so they're, they're, they're bringing coolers. They're walking out with, you know, three and $400 worth of um, beef, pork, chicken. Selling food direct from the farm store isn't the only part of the business that's booming during COVID. Shipping meats anywhere in the country is up too. Why is this surprising? When New York Times bestselling author Michael Pollan first found Polyface Farm in researching his 2006 book, Omnivore's Dilemma, Salatin refused to ship meat to him. He said that Pollan was outside of the farm's local food shed radius of a four-hour drive. As of last year, however, Salatin is shipping meats anywhere. While he's been criticized for changing his policy, the shift is more indicative of Salatin's own shark-like, keep-moving-or-die ethos. 
than it is of any sort of food shed betrayal. You know, we started shipping. We kind of did our very soft, kind of quiet launch last July. And that kind of, you know, it, uh, you know, seven, eight orders a week, just kind of going out gently. And now all of a sudden it's uh, whatever, 40, you know, uh, it, it's just completely exploded. Consumer behavior like buying in bulk or ordering online that is driven by feeling food insecure during the COVID crisis is causing some interesting innovations on Polyface Farm and others like it. I mean, we, we've had people now call us and say, how can I get to the top of your list? How can I be on your first class team? So I talked to a farmer the other day who's thinking of starting basically a, a farm prime like Amazon Prime. Uh, a farm prime where you'd call it like a food insurance policy. Pay us $100 a year as a retainer fee to be in our first class, you know, uh, top 10% tier. And we're going we're gonna to make sure that no matter what happens, we service this group of people who have been paying in $100 a year to a food insurance policy. You know, th they're going to get service first. In Virginia, where Polyface Farm resides, the initial lockdown orders closed restaurants as well as farmers markets. As farmers were gearing up for spring, their key sales outlets were unavailable. At the same time, consumers were more and more eager to get products from the farm. To respond, Polyface joined with some other producers to bring the farmers market to consumers in a minimal touch curbside pickup environment. And so four of us went together, us and a produce operation, a bakery and and the cheesemaker. And the four of us um, went together and cr created a, an electronic platform. And it's the most convenient thing you can imagine. It's convenient for both farmers and consumers. And, um, and, and I, th I think it really has legs. For the first time, I feel like in the local, the local food scene, we we finally have a a credible um, a credible competitor to Walmart curbside service, and that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It's been a really successful offering, and, and sales have just exploded. I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking. Uh, we're in, we're just finished today. It's the the last of the third week we've had this, and. Um, and we're running up there into the uh, $15,000 a week in sales. It's, it's really dramatic. What will this mean for farms long-term? So the question is, will it stick? You know, will this, will, will the new people we're seeing and the new awareness we're hearing, is it going to stick? And as my son Daniel said the other day, we were talking about this and, uh, and we, and he said, well, the fact is that if just 10% of it sticks, we're going to see a 30% increase in sales overall, you know, going forward. Well, that's a, that's great. I'll take 30% increase in sales any time of day. Salatin sees more interesting positive changes on the horizon. Some of that is innovation from farmers, yes. But equally important is a trend toward consumers getting in the game, too. Consumers' newfound interest in having a direct in with farms is what seems to be driving innovation.
I think some things that will emerge are certainly urban farming, urban agriculture. We're going to see, we're going to see, um, I think, a pressure on things like homeowners associations that preclude growing a tomato plant because that's agriculture in an HOA or backyard chickens. Salatin doesn't think that we will be going back to business as usual anytime soon. I think there's going to be a long tail to this thing, and some of it's going to be just avoidance of crowds, avoidance of bigs. People are going to want to shop small. They want to want to shop close. And this new way of thinking is going to drive what farms do, how they change to meet demand, and even the possibility of new farms popping up in our communities. What I'm suggesting is that there are going to be incredible brand new opportunities joining this community scale, human-sized local food effort uh, as a new authenticity in the food system. And what does that mean for Salatin and other local farmers like him? Well, I I think that those of us who know how to uh, grow food and have a a message and a, a provenance that has integrity uh, and transparency, I think we're going to be in the driver's seat. Always thought-provoking and thinking, Salatin and his team at Polyface Farms spend a lot of time considering their customers, current and future. What kind of needs do they have? For farms like Polyface Farm, knowing your customers is key to knowing how to adapt to a constantly changing landscape. We've got the baby boomers. They get it. How do we get to these millennials? And, um, and, and there's a lot of good things about the millennials, love millennials. But the one thing that really stuck out to me that was, that was negative was that as a group, millennials would much rather spend money on something fun today than save money for either a rainy day or something bigger, more fun in the future. And that's all part of this convenience mentality. Salatin believes millennials are not well served by the current impulsive, I want it now culture. He thinks that a dose of cultural hardship and a forced frugality, like he experienced growing up, might serve them well into the future. You, you got to prepare for another 1929, right? You know, you got to uh, get ready for this. I mean, goodness, we even saved, we even saved little um, squares of aluminum foil. There was a there was a, a, a drawer in the kitchen, you know, where if you, <laughs> if you had aluminum foil and it was left over, you, you put it in that. My, uh, but my point is that that, that that depression, World War II hardship really built in a kind of a pack rat stockpile um, saving mentality. Money, food, material, just the ability to live. That, that I think we've lost. We, we've lost in our, our just our consumerism, materialistic, uh, convenience-oriented, just-in-time, uh, abundance-everything. Salatin is a baby boomer. His parents and grandparents lived through the Depression and its aftermath when a self-sufficient mindset was needed for survival. And that mindset of conservation trickled down. But now in 2020... The historical memory of what it was like to live on the margins, to do without, to save, that has all but disappeared. 
Salatin thinks about COVID imposing a sort of cultural shift from where we were two months ago to where we were after both world wars. Back then, many families had vegetable gardens, victory gardens, to provide fresh vegetables during food shortages. It wasn't considered stodgy or or paranoid or hillbilly, you know, uh, back. Uh, it, it was it was it was just what everybody did. And so w- what I see is this this imposed this this um, pandemic imposed home centricity is forcing people to, for the first time in their lives, reevaluate where home centric satisfaction can come from. Home centricity. I kind of feel a new Joel Salatin book coming on. As we all live with new lockdown and distancing protocols, many more of us are eating at home, finding entertainment at home, and non-essential personnel are working from home if they can. Social lives are being reinvented. Folks are doing things that they had put on the back burner bucket list. Making bread, reading more, organizing. Salatin wonders if we might find a new kind of happiness. Can, can I live here? Um, can I be with my kids and be, and be satisfied and, and be affirmed and be happy? And so guess what? People are playing board games. They're, you know, they're composing poetry. They're planting gardens. They're getting backyard chickens. They're they're baking. I mean, for the first time, they're baking. Hey, let's bake some bread. Oh, cool, you know. Um, and wouldn't it be great if if we could if we could rediscover that personal life satiation can occur in the home, and we don't have to leave the home for life satisfaction. If, if nothing more than that happens, this will be a, a cultural game changer. Can you imagine that? Can you look at your more restricted home and social lives and think, how can I make the most of this? How can we find value in our current situation? Instead of thinking, when will we go back to how it was? Home is a pit stop between everything that's important in life. And what if home becomes what's important in life and everything else is just a little memory or a a little, you know, a a fun thing, but home is actually where it happens. Home in the kitchen, home in in, in entertainment, in recreation, creating that kind of of um, home-centric curiosity and and life orbit i think can be a can be a very positive thing in the culture salatin wonders if families might choose to continue eating more of their meals together at home once covid lockdowns end for the past 20 years people have been getting more of their meals outside the home restaurants fast food takeout than they have from cooking at home the numbers before the lockdown 60% of all food in America, eaten in America, was prepared outside the home. 60%. You can't have authentic food. You can't have authentic local economies when people are this disconnected 
from the anchor of it all, which is homocentricity. About five or six years ago, Salatin started a new program at Polyface Farm, trying to get his customers to think about food differently. One way to do this is to get them to store more food in their homes. That means when it's time to make dinner, you don't have to run to the store. Remember that just-in-time mentality? He wants to get away from that. What if Polyface Farm and Salatin can inspire consumers to build a larder? Most of you don't know what a larder is. It's basically a glorified pantry. We, we store so little food in our homes anymore that even pantry is almost becoming archaic. You know, it, it's like the, the kitchen cabinet, you know, is, is, that's all I have in there. You know, some potato chips and some Campbell's chicken soup, and that's about it. Um, so, uh, so we introduced larder to our, our customer base. Salatin wants to play the role of larder coach to his customers. His larder program offers a discount for those who can afford to buy in bulk. We wanted to really reward customers who would buy 10 and 15 chickens at a time, you know, once a quarter, as opposed to the folks who just popped in and got, you know, one chicken at a time. You know that they were getting it spontaneously. They weren't planning out their events. We, we, we wanted to, to reward the planners. And so we rolled out our larder program. To have a larder, you have to adjust your thinking, how you buy food, how you store it, and how you plan your meals, and maybe even how you organize your home and your kitchen. Maybe you have to get a chest freezer. Okay, um, get one. A and think out there three months in advance, not just tomorrow. 50% of Americans at four o'clock had no idea what was for dinner. Maybe a cultural shift, a new mentality of being prepared for a rainy day will result from this COVID crisis. Even if you don't get a chest freezer, maybe the freezer and cabinets that you do have will be stocked differently, more thoughtfully. If going into this, almost every home in the country had had three months worth of food in a larder, in a pantry, we would not have had the, you know, the calamity at the supermarket that we had. In the midst of the coronavirus outbreak and its global response, we are living in the middle of something most of us could never have imagined. We are all living with a lot of uncertainty. So what outlasts this chaos? What can we depend on? For food. For a feeling of security. For peace of mind. Maybe the farm. That's the therapy of a farm. And we farmers have the privilege, the privilege and the responsibility to step into that bridge with our urban, our urban friends, our urban customers to build that little point of real, real life for them. And people in these times of disruption, they're desperate to know what goes on? What outlasts this? What goes on? And on our farms, we have that. We need to share it.
It's been great to have you along for this episode of Talk Farm to Me. Special thanks always to our farmers who are working hard to get delicious food to us during the crisis and always. And of course, thank you today to Farmer Joel Salatin. Talking with him was one of the highlights of my last 56 days of lockdown. For more information about this episode, including links to Salatin's Lunatic Farmer blog, head on over to TalkFarmToMe.com. Next up on Talk Farm To Me, we explore what's going on in the dairy industry and why farmers are having to dump milk. It's not what you think, either. We'll hear more from Joel Salatin on this issue, as well as some dairy farmers from Wisconsin, Florida, and New York. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, drop me a line or give Talk Farm to me a rating on iTunes. And please don't be shy about sharing it with your friends. I have loved hearing from you. How you're starting a garden, looking for a CSA, raising chickens for the first time, how you're interested in farms and the issues they face. Keep your ideas coming. If you have any comments, questions, or ideas about farms or farm issues that I should cover, there's a suggestion tab on talkfarmtome.com where you can share your thoughts. I'm your host, Farm Girl. Stay tuned for a new episode in two weeks when I bring a new farmer and, yes, finally, a cow or two right into your living room. <laughs>